wonderful songs to prepare our heart for worship and coming to the Word of God. So grateful for that. Grateful that we stood the whole time because it's going to be a long sermon, so I'm glad you got your stretching in early. <laughs> and for our visitors, hang with me today. I know you're jumping right into kind of a verse-by-verse exposition in the book of Luke. You're about to jump into a difficult section of Scripture, but one in which we will see the glories of Christ. So stick with me, write stuff down as you go. Verses, we may not be able to turn to everything. This is a two-part sermon, so hopefully all of our questions about the transfiguration of Christ, at least some of them, will be answered at the end of next Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it's a hard path of suffering in this life for the sake of the name, suffering before we are glorified with Christ. We've seen it in our own lives, and We've experienced it even this week. And Father, we just need to come here and be refreshed. We need to set our eyes upon Jesus. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would show us the glories of Christ, that our eyes would be opened and unblinded. The veil would be lifted and continue to be lifted as we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and help my dear brothers and sisters, to recognize that by seeing His glory, even today in this hour, by Your Spirit, we will be transformed more and more into the image to become like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So help us to that end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There have been glimpses of the glory of God all throughout world history, recorded for us in the Old Testament. Glimpses in bright light, the light of the glory of God. And these glimpses is God Himself condescending to come to us to show Himself to man with with a visible manifestation of His glory. Um, It's God coming to us, and so you've heard of the term Shekinah glory, and all of that, all that means is God coming down and settling on us, tabernacling with us, showing His glorious presence to us. This is what the Old Testament calls in many places that Shekinah glory of God. Now, when Moses, right, when Moses received the law, it was written with the finger of God upon the stone tablets. And as he was receiving the law of God, he saw the glory of God. He saw the Shekinah glory of God as the text says, in lightning flashes. 
and a thick cloud upon the mountain. Exodus 19, verse 16. But soon after, Moses took those stone tablets and shattered them on the rock below his feet because when he came down from that mountain, he found the Israelites worshiping not Yahweh, but the golden calf. And Moses was discouraged, and so in his discouragement, he would go to the tent of meeting, and the pillar of cloud would come down to Moses right there and stand, it says in Exodus 33, by the entrance of the tent. And listen to this, and Moses would speak with the Lord face to face. But soon after, God would hear the prayer of Moses, and after Moses prayed to God on behalf of the Israelites and their sin, at the end of his prayer, he said what I think we often say as well, please, please show me your glory. And Moses then, right after that prayer, went again up to Mount Sinai, and God rewrote the law and rechiseled the two stone tablets and the Lord met again with him in the cloud and it's revealed to us in Exodus 33 and 34 what happened where Moses up there was hid in the cleft of the rock and the white glory of God passed by and the voice of God spoke and interpreted his glory and explained his glory and his glory was explained and proclaimed by the goodness of God. And so when the presence of God passed by Moses, the text says that Moses, in, in some way, shape, or form, saw the Lord's back or the fading presence of God. And there Moses was up on that mountain, not eating or drinking for 40 days and 40 nights as the law of God was given to him and revealed to him. And then he finally for the second time, came down from Sinai. And remember what his face looked like? His face came down reflecting the brightness of the glory of God. And when he came down, it wasn't much time later, and God gave instructions to the Israelites to build a tabernacle, a portable worship place. They would need it because they would be wandering in the wilderness. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle was finished, just as God has said, the Shekinah glory came down and hovered over the tent. And the text says in Exodus chapter 40 that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses couldn't enter it at that point because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory had filled the tabernacle. And for most of you know that we're in the book of Deuteronomy as well, and we saw as the, as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for their sin, God was with them. We saw that the Shekinah glory of God in that book of Deuteronomy was the manifest presence of God with the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. Remember what it looked like? A pillar of cloud by day with 
bright flashes of light from that cloud and a pillar of fire by night to show you the way in which you should go. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 33. Well, centuries later, after the wilderness wanderings and after entering into the land of Canaan, it was time for the kings in the history of Israel, for King Solomon and the great temple to be built. And when he finished the temple, the text says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests, they could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord, the text says, filled the Lord's house. But sadly for Israel, their history was still, was still one of rebellion and disobedience even in the presence of the glory of God. And it became very dark. In fact, in the book of Samuel, maybe you remember this, even a boy was born to a malicious priest. And the name of that boy, and I don't recommend this name for your next kid, the name of that boy was Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. Because of that rebellion of Israel over the years, the prophets would come preaching repentance to the Israelites, but ultimately the people of God turned their back on their God and the glory of God departed from the temple. The book of Ezekiel accounts this sad departing of the glory of God from the temple. It recounts this Ichabod in chapter 10. The Shekinah glory had filled the inner court of the temple. The Shekinah glory of God had risen above the cherubim and the throne made of sapphire. But then the glory in that temple, it was an exiting glory, a departing glory. It departed from the inner chamber and the text tells us how that glory moved out to the door of the threshold of the temple. And then the glory of God went out of the temple and headed east. And the glory of God hovered, guess where? The glory of God hovered right above the Mount of Olives. And the glory of God departed at the Mount of Olives, vanished from Israel, and was gone for 400 dark and silent years. For hundreds of years, there were darkness. And then... The light broke in in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And the darkness out in the field by those fields in Bethlehem, there were shepherds, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the text says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear because the Shekinah glory had returned associated with the birth of a little baby, a baby named Jesus. What is the connection between the Shekinah glory and Jesus? Luke means to answer that question in our passage the next two weeks. That very question. In fact, Luke, of all the gospel writers, uses the word glory more than any other gospel writer 13 times. And I think he wants to show us the glory of Jesus in the account of the transfiguration of Jesus, that the glory has returned 
to Israel in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, and we'll read of it and see if you don't see it just in the bare reading of the text. Luke chapter 9, find verse 28, and we'll read this incredible account all the way through verse 36. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. If you want to see the glory of God, you have to look at Jesus. If you want to see the glory of God, you're going to see it in the face of Jesus Christ. And I want us as a church to enjoy this time together. To behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You say, where's the application? Listen to this. As we as a church stop for the next two weeks, put things aside, put our eyes upon Jesus and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we see His glory, we will be, be, be being transformed into His image from glory to glory. What we need is to see Christ. And to see his glory. And I pray that that happens as we come to this passage the next two weeks. So we're going to look at this under four headings. You have an insert if you'd like to follow along there. And the passage is there for you. We're going to look at four headings this week and next week. First, let's look at the setting. Number one, the setting for the transfiguration. The setting. Verse 26, for whoever... Verse 26 of Luke 9, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Clearly speaking in verse 26 of the second coming glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Agreed? Verse 27, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God. And so the context is Jesus revealing, I'm the one like a son of man. I'm the glorious Christ, but I've got something to tell you. I'm going to suffer first. There's suffering before glory for Jesus Christ. And then there's us in the last passage, right? On this hard road home to heaven and following Christ, there's suffering before glory. That is the context. But also in verse 26, where he ends with is the glory of Christ at his second coming. And that leads us to verse 27. There are some of those standing and watching this. And he's referring to the 12 disciples. Some of you 12 disciples will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then our text moves on to verse 28. Eight days after these sayings, Jesus takes some that were standing there, Peter, James, and John, and they get a sneak preview of the kingdom of God to be manifest at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe verse 27, tough verse 27, I don't think anybody can be dogmatic on this, but I believe that this refers to the event of the transfiguration recorded for us right in the near context. And so many reasons I could give for this, but let me give you the chief reason, other than the New Testament, the connections right here in the text. And the reason is, when we'll look at this next week more, and we read it in our scripture reading, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 18, Peter recounts his eyewitness experience of this mount of transfiguration, and he says this about this experience. Listen carefully. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he referring to? The transfiguration. The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When we, where He received glory and honor from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. So he's referring to the event of the transfiguration And he calls it the majesty and the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the transfiguration is a sneak preview of the glory of the coming kingdom, the glory of the king, the Christ of God, the Son of Man in the context, who will come with glory upon the clouds. And in the book of 2 Peter, you know Peter. Peter, in that book, at the end of the book, makes it clear that there is a future coming of Jesus in that book, connected with the day of the Lord, the second coming, still future, yet in chapter 1, when you look back at the transfiguration, Peter still claimed that this event was the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ already and not yet. Clearly, I think, humbly, it's connected to the transfiguration. Much debate on this, but let's move forward. Verse 28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, stop there. So Jesus takes his three disciples, the inner circle who saw him raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He takes these three, climbs up to a mountain, and mountains were always a place like 
Mount Sinai and Moses, a place of revelation of the, right? Speaking from God and the glory of God. So he's up on a mountain and what is he doing at night, most likely? Jesus is praying. It's interesting to me that almost all of the big events in the life of Christ follow prayer. Is there not a lesson in that for us? If one like a son of man, if the Christ of God depends on the Father in prayer, how much more should we pray? I don't think we realize how much we ought to pray. But Jesus is praying, and there's a first divine interruption in the passage. And that leads us to our second heading this morning. First, that's the setting of the transfiguration. Secondly, let's look at the site, the site of the transfiguration. It's an amazing site. Look at it in verse 29. And while he was praying, something happened. And let me just stop and say, I, I have to say it. This is God's answer to his prayer. As he is praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And so Jesus is up on that mountain. Bless their hearts, the disciples are probably snoring already. Jesus is really alone, praying to his Father, and I'll tell you what's on his heart. He's thinking of his suffering that he's just announced. He's thinking of the cross. He's thinking of the cross that he and his disciples will carry in the plan of God. We know this because it's a transition time in his ministry in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, he will head south to Jerusalem. He will turn his face to the cross of Calvary. It's already been sealed. The rejection of the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel have sealed the deal. And the cross is before his eyes. And he's praying. He's praying about this. And his face becomes different in the midst of his prayer. His face becomes different. Because if you were to look at Jesus from Nazareth in the crowds, you would, he wouldn't look like anybody different. He would look like any man. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. He was real humanity. But the text says his face became different. And Matthew's account says that that difference was that his face shone like the sun. And what I want you to understand that this is not the reflected glory of Moses coming down from that Mount Sinai. This is intrinsic glory. The glory that came out of Jesus Christ that became outwardly visible. And it starts by emphasizing the face of Jesus and it moves externally to his clothes. And the text translates that his clothing were white and constantly participle, constantly gleaming. And that's not like white paper. It's diamond white. It's gleaming white. And that participle, participle for, for the gleaming nature of his clothing is, the, is only used one time in the New Testament right here. 
and it should be translated, his clothing began to flash like lightning. Hold that thought. Don't forget that. His clothing flashed like lightning. Now, come on. I have a house up on a hill, and I have a deck, thankful to John and Andrew and Don Feldstein for that deck, but are up on that deck watching storms roll in. It's one of my favorite things to do in the darkness and see those storms roll through. And you probably should be inside, right? And you're still on your deck. And the lightning is flashing. Have you been there? Have you seen that? It's incredible. This is what Christ looked like. Participle. It kept appearing like this. Flashes of lightning. That's what he appeared like. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to see from this passage. This is, this is a sneak peek of the glory of Jesus Christ at His second coming. This is a sneak peek of the coming kingdom and the coming glory of Jesus Christ. And this is a sneak peek at who the God-man really is, who Jesus really is. Because the Son of God didn't give up His deity. He took to Himself flesh and He veiled Himself in flesh. And at the transfiguration, it's like the veil was pulled away and the brightness, the intrinsic brightness of the glory of the divinity of Jesus Christ burst forth like lightning. A picture of who He is and the glory of His coming. Not only His pre-incarnate glory, His eternal glory, but His intrinsic glory, that He is God Veiled in flesh, and the veil was pulled back for the inner three, and they saw his glory, and a sneak peek of the power of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the sight of the transfiguration. More to say on that next week. That leads us then to something incredible. Now, I don't know, the disciples were sleeping, but the text is pretty funny, and they're not sleeping anymore, especially Peter. Our third heading then, the speech, the speech during the transfiguration. There are three different speeches, three different voices in this transfiguration account. Today we will look at the first of those three and pick it up next week. The first speech is the speech, the speech of the three, the speech of the three. What do I mean? Look at verse 30. And behold, because he wants us to see this, behold, Two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so the disciples are alone for a while up on the mountain. There's four of them. Soon there's six of them. They're seeing these bright flashing lightning-like bolts and gleaming coming from the person of Christ. And then there's two men. They somehow know who they are. 
talking, and they're talking to Jesus, and the text says it's Moses and Elijah. Now, we know Elijah had departed from that fiery chariot to heaven hundreds of years of earlier, and Moses had died never seeing the promised land. But you know what? They're very much both alive right here and now. There's a sermon right there. And very well aware of what's about to happen. And in fact, Luke alone lets us in because there's three accounts of the transfiguration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke alone, of all the New Testament writers, he's the only one who lets us in into the topic of their conversation. Of the three. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And it says it right here. Let's read it. Verse 31. Okay, so the two men appeared with him. Verse 31. Who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're talking about his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, doesn't that read funny? They were speaking... They were speaking about his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. How do you accomplish a departure? Tough to translate, isn't it? It would seem. What's that mean? Well, did you know the, the verse before in 1 Peter chapter 1.15, the verse before Peter describing the transfiguration, Peter says this, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, same word, you will be able to call these things to mind. And then he goes on to describe the transfiguration. So clearly, the departure includes the death of Jesus Christ, which is about to occur, the text says, at Jerusalem. Correct? So it's his death. But when you say the word departure... I mean, if I'm going to depart on a plane, I don't just leave somewhere, I'm what? I'm going somewhere. You see, there's, okay, now just track with me. You're leaving for somewhere. And so I think that they are discussing the departure, and in that departure, they're discussing the death, burial, resurrection, and listen to this, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven to the right hand of the Father. All of that is included in the word departure. And you can see it in verse 51 of the same chapter, when the days were approaching for his ascension. So there's a, I think there's a connection there as well. But let's unpack this further. Okay, I hope I haven't lost anybody. Here we go. Now it gets exciting. The Greek word for departure is actually, okay, get ready for this, the Exodus. The Exodus. So listen. The Exodus of Jesus, the departure of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension at Jerusalem is connected by Luke. And it's got a, a, a the in front of it. It's a technical term. It's connected to Luke to the Exodus of the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Who led that little expedition? A guy called Moses. 
And so we see the significance of Moses here at this point in the transfiguration is the connection to the exodus of God's people out of bondage in Egypt. Literally, they were speaking of his they were speaking of his exodus which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were speaking of the exodus that he was about to, what does that word mean, accomplish? He was about to fulfill. Fulfill is a good translation. Complete, accomplish in Jerusalem. And so Jesus was going to fill up, accomplish the exodus. So what Luke is saying is that when Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary in his death, and through his burial and resurrection, followed by his ascension, and the pouring out of the Spirit, he fulfilled the Exodus event recorded for us in the book of Exodus. And Moses understands this. Moses is talking about this. Moses gets this. The Old Testament saints are alive and well. And the the verb form is there's this ongoing conversation that they're having with Jesus. And Moses is excited. I can just see Moses. What's he saying as he talks about this? You could do this. Jesus, you could do this. Go through with it. Go to Jerusalem. Our redemption depends on it. Go south. Accomplished the fulfillment of all that was pictured at the time of Exodus. You see, the people of God, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jews, the Israelites in the past, were in bondage to slavery in Egypt, right? For 400 years. They couldn't rescue themselves. But the, the power and glory of God came, and there were ten plagues. And remember all those plagues that showed the glory of God, but there was the tenth plague. The death angel would strike down the firstborn of all of the families in all of Egypt. The firstborn animal, the firstborn child in all the region of Egypt. Unless the people of God would believe and listen to the word of God and trust God and would stay in their homes and They would slaughter an unblemished lamb and they would take the blood of that unblemished lamb and they would put it above the doorpost of their home. And the death angel, if he saw the blood, would pass over that house and spare the firstborn child. And that's what happened. Unfortunately, the Egyptians did not believe the word of God. And their firstborn were killed, and Pharaoh cracked under the pressure finally, and he let the people of God go. Now, it gets even better. I want you to take your Bibles, keep your fingers in Luke chapter 9. I want you to go to that passage in Exodus chapter 13. Don't be discouraged. This is breaking new ground for all of us. Hang with me. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. Exodus 13, 21. Okay, so the, the Passover has happened and Pharaoh let, had let the people go and uh, they set out to, to leave Egypt. Look at Exodus 13, verse 21. 
the Lord, who was, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so they go out, and they're following the Shekinah glory of God. But Pharaoh changed his mind. He said, what have I done? And says, we've got to chase these Israelites down. This was not a good idea. So look, pick it up in, in chapter 14 and verse 10. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, It is because there were no graves. They start complaining. And Moses basically interrupts them. And look at verse 13. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish, there it is, there's our word, which he will fulfill, which he will accomplish for you today. That's the same word we're seeing in Luke. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Oh, look at the end of the transfiguration account. And they kept silent. Silent, their mouths were closed for the revealing of the glory of the Lord and His salvation through judgment. So, what happened? Well, look at verse 18. Keep going in chapter 14, verse 18. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And look at verse 19, and tuck this away for future study. The angel of God, Malach Yahweh, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness Yet it gave light at night, thus the one did not come near the other all night long. And so somehow, there's the angel of the Lord, and there is the the Shekinah glory of the Lord together, that both move together, same function, together to protect and to save. Somehow distinct, but both the glory of the Lord. So what happened? Well... Verse 22, Moses stretched out his hand. You know the story. The waters divided. Verse 22, the sons of Israel went through in the midst of the sea on, uh, on the dry land. And the waters were like a wall on, on their right and on their left. And there's a wall of water. They went through. They were rescued. And, of course, Pharaoh and his armies tried to go through. And the water crashed upon them. And they perished in the Red Sea. Verse 30, of chapter 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power 
which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. That was the first exodus. That was the glory of God that saved them. And now there's a new exodus happening, the ultimate exodus. And Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, the glory of God through His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension would accomplish would fulfill forever all that the exodus out of Egypt symbolized. The Passover. He's the Passover lamb who was slain for us. The unblemished lamb of God. For when the unblemished lamb of God, when the blood of Jesus is applied to your hearts through faith, the death angel will pass over you And you will never die for your sins. You will be freed. Freed from the penalty of your sin. Redeemed out of the bondage to sin. And the death and the waters of God's judgment. And Moses and Elijah are all over this. And they're speaking of this great event. Jesus, you can do this. Thank you for what you're willing to do for us. I don't know exactly what they said, but it'll be one of my first questions when I get to glory is to ask what they were exactly what they were talking about. Because J.C. Ryle is correct, quotes, Moses and Elijah knew the meaning of that death. They knew how much it depend, how much depended on it. Therefore, they talked about it, end quote. So let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you want to know what fellowship is? It's having these kinds of conversations about our great exodus that was accomplished when Jesus Christ said, it is finished upon the cross of Calvary. That is the best kind of grace group. That is the best kind of Bible study. That is the best kind of fellowship. Is the fellowship of those three, the speech of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus was about to accomplish it. And the text doesn't say he might accomplish it. Go back to Luke. The text doesn't say in Luke chapter 9, he might accomplish it, that he would go to his departure to make it possible to save us. No, he went there to accomplish our redemption. He would succeed in what he is doing. It is no accident. It is a divine must. It is necessary that I go. Because when I go... And that word necessary or must is connected to this word accomplishment. When he went to the cross, he didn't provisionally finish it. He said, it is finished and he accomplished your redemption. All of it from beginning to end. He fulfilled his mission with purpose, direction, intent. He fulfilled the exodus of his people out of bondage to sin and death by his own blood. And I know that a Moses and Elijah were excited and they were saying, thank you, Jesus, for not succumbing to the attacks of the devil in your own wilderness wanderings without food or drink for 40 days and 40 nights that you were willing to go through suffering before glory. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for holding fast and realizing this. 
Oh, the disciples did not understand how the Christ of God or one like a son of man that would come in such glory would have to suffer before glory. They didn't understand the beginnings of his glory. They didn't understand as of yet the glory of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all that he accomplished, our full redemption. Listen, the suffering of Christ and his exodus, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and pouring forth of his spirit, in that exodus event, he accomplished the whole plan of God. He fulfilled and will fulfill the exodus and the eschaton through that event. For our individual redemption as sinners is not just from the penalty of sin, where He forgives us and clothes us with His righteousness, but He also breaks the power of our sin today. And one day, praise God, He will what? Bring us out. He will bring our exodus out of not only the the penalty of sin, the, the power of sin, but one day the very presence of sin will be gone. Because the glory of the cross establishes the glory of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The two are not the same. The two are not in competition. First suffering and then glory. First there was Moses connected to the Exodus. Then there is Elijah connected to the eschaton. For he is the what? He is Elijah coming who will be sent before the great and terrible day of the Lord. We have Moses, we have Elijah, and we have our Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills it all, the exodus to the end. And so we get a glimpse of this in the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. The intersection between the cross and the kingdom, the cross before the crown. This makes sense of different verses. I just don't think we realize just how much Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary. It makes sense of different verses, not just for you, it's for every blade of grass. For It's not just a salvation of people at stake with the death of Jesus Christ. It's cosmic reconciliation that is at stake with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which makes sense as one theologian, Vlock, says, quotes, Paul makes this connection in Colossians 1 verse 20. And through him and through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. See why we needed two parts. The first speech, they were speaking of his departure, of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, as he close here, let's go back where we began. Tie it together now. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Do you remember years before the birth of Jesus, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory departed, Ichabod. 
It departed from where? The Mount of Olives. But in Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory has returned. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we saw His glory first in His humiliation. A humiliation at the cross of Calvary that established His exaltation. We saw the glory of the cross. The cross which will establish the bright glory of the crown. But the glory departed from the Mount of Olives and disappeared. Now, listen carefully. Let's, get, let's do some theology. Where did Jesus ascend back to heaven, having accomplished our redemption, to sit at the right hand of the Father so that He could pour forth His Spirit? He went up at the Mount of Olives. He ascended back there. And where is Jesus coming back to this earth to reign? Where will He come back? Come on. The Mount of Olives. If you're not familiar, it's in Zechariah chapter 14. Listen carefully. I'm just going to read. Just listen carefully. Zechariah 14. Behold, verse 1, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The house is plundered, the the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord, who? The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when He fights on the day of battle. Verse 4, Zechariah 14, in that day, His feet, whose feet? The Lord's feet, and that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. In that day there will be no light. And the luminaries will dwindle for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at the evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. And it will be summer as well as winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Who? The Lord. And in that day the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. That is the Christ of God. That is one coming in glory as the Son of Man. That is the King over the all the earth. What does He look like? Daniel chapter 10 verse 6. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. There it is. Lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of His words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision nevertheless a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves and John picks up on this in Revelation chapter 1 behold he says of the Christ he is coming with the clouds 
And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair, his head and his hair were white, like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Wait a minute, I thought it said the Lord God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last in verse 8. Well, it's Jesus speaking. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Now I'm telling you what, you say, where's the application? Listen to me. Are you disinterested in this one? What is the application? Come back next week. But here is the application. The cloud is going to lift. There's going to be one person standing before you the rest of your life, and his name is Jesus. And God the Father booms from heaven and says this, and this is application. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to the one who has accomplished our exodus and without fail has and is and will lead us into his glory. Come back next week. Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're so thankful that he indeed is alive and well. He is still bringing sinners out of the bondage of their own sin and bringing them out and in to the kingdom, into the light of His glory. He's still forgiving sinners. He's still giving us His righteousness. He's still alive, ever living to intercede for us that our faith would not fail. He is already there, seated in the heavens, and we are tethered to Him by faith alone so that where He is, we will certainly be also. Help us to see glimpses of His glory in 
this passage in the Word of God to see more of the glory of God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. And I do, it's my prayer that we would see His glory in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our own disappointment and heartbreaks, disillusionment and rejection, confusion. That we would set our eyes not horizontally, but we'd fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That we would consider Him, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Why? Because of the glory to come. Not simply His own glory, but a people that He would redeem to reign with Him forever and ever without end. Oh, thank You, Father, for dropping the veil from our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And I do pray if there's one here, maybe this sermon went right over their head in many ways, but I would pray that there's just an impact to say that this Jesus is more than simply a man or a great prophet or a figment of historical imagination, and they would do business with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they would simply not stop trying to earn their own salvation, but they would simply come to Jesus and say, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need your cross to pay for my sins. I need your perfect life to be my perfection, to stand before God in white, hot glory in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Oh, would they come? Would you help them to come to Jesus in simple faith today? Encourage all of our hearts today that are perhaps heavy, even with the Senate vote and many other reasons. Make us to remember that we are yours and that you are in control. We love you, Lord. Strengthen our hearts today, even as we sing. May we sing from hearts that are full of glimpses of the glory of Jesus Christ.